chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Many thanks, Fred, uh, for reading. I'll just get my PowerPoint ready as well before we begin. We are all dying. I'm sorry I'm if that sorry. is a shocking and unexpected way to begin this sermon. Um, in some ways, it shouldn't be surprising. It's straightforward and obvious enough to us. There's no point denying it. And yet, even as I say it, I, I feel myself squirm and the top of my stomach tightening. I know it's true at least in abstract, that you and I will all die, but I still find it hard to accept. No doubt some of that feeling is just me and the way I'm kind of made in my natural apprehensiveness, uh, but also the deeper feelings and fears of my own heart. But it's also likely that some of it arises out of what I've inevitably absorbed from the beliefs and values of the society and culture around me. You see, many of us have grown up in a world relatively sanitized from the reality of death. Unless we've been shaken out of it through some experience of death, uh, perhaps by coming near to it ourselves, or sadly witnessing the death of someone close at hand, or maybe even living in another part of the world where people have a more realistic sense of our mortality. Many of us have been kept at arm's length from it. It's something that happens on our screens, in the news or in TV dramas. It's something that happens in hospitals and hospices. But in general, it's removed from our view. In many ways, we are insulated from death. Now, none of that is to undermine the pain and the grief 
and the sadness of death that you and I will have experienced. It's a terrible thing for which the Lord Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. It's simply to say that for better or for worse, death is real. And that is not something that we as a culture and society in general often acknowledge or accept. But, you know, generally, that's not always been the case. Christians um, throughout the centuries actually made it a practice to remember death or to keep death daily before one's eyes. That's what um, the, the skull signifies in many pieces of Christian art, like this one of um, St. Jerome by Caravaggio. Um, likewise, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, um, not the triple jumper, uh, resolved to think much on all occasions of his own death, of his own dying, and of the common circumstances which attend death. The question is why? To you and me, that probably seems so morbid. Well, the reason isn't morbid curiosity. Instead, Christians through the ages were comfortable, even confident, speaking about death and keeping it in view because it reminded them of their limits as transient creatures, as people who are like dust, are here one minute and gone the next, but whose lives in Christ were not threatened or lost in biological death. In other words, living in the shadow of death helped them to see the light of Christ more brightly. With Paul, they truly said, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Through that word to us this morning, the aim is to recover something of that, of um, embracing with faith um, the reality that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In doing so, I hope and pray that we too will discover, perhaps surprisingly, just how life-giving and freeing a Christian reflection on death can be. Well, hopefully you'll remember some of the background from the last couple of weeks, how Philippi was a Greek, a religiously diverse city. Yet importantly, it was also a distinctly Roman colony. Um, Philippi was a, a popular retirement spot for uh, soldiers, Roman soldiers. It was the equivalent of Marbella um, back in, um, in ancient Rome. So you can imagine how Roman citizenship was cherished there. In fact, the residents of Philippi replicated Rome's culture in as many ways as possible, but especially in terms of status. Philippi was status obsessed. It was preoccupied with honorary titles and public recognition and social standing. Um, and that much is obvious from many of the Latin inscriptions, which we can see today, which have been found all over the remains of the ancient city, proclaiming people's achievements and their standing in the local pecking order. Um, a bit like this one, written by an ordinary person. Here lies Vitalis, first the slave, then the son of Gaius Lavius Faustus. I was born in his home as a slave. I lived 16 years and I was a salesman in a shop. I was pleasant and well-liked, but I was snatched away by the gods. 
that's the sort of culture that Paul was writing into, where you where your place and your standing was part of who you are, and which ordinary people in Philippi inevitably absorbed. And so when news came of Paul's imprisonment, that would have shaken the Philippian church. It was shameful. Maybe it led to doubt or confusion, perhaps disillusionment with Paul, the person who brought them the gospel, or maybe even about Christ. Not only this, the Philippian Christians were facing local persecutions themselves, and that would have led to a great deal of shame as well from family, friends, neighbours. Perhaps it made them wonder, you know, after all this, what's going to be written on my own burial inscription? Perhaps something like this. Here lies Jacus Haroldius Egatus, once a respectable citizen and family man, now disgraced by association with Paul the criminal and the crucified Jesus Christ. So what's the message to the Philippian church, potentially living in fear and in danger of becoming disillusioned? What's the message to us in the midst of our own fears? as we are reminded daily at the moment of the shadow of death. And as the church struggles to make an impact on a society obsessed with preserving health and status and image at all costs. Well, I've summarized it like this. The life-giving path of the Christian is in Christ, even in death. Reading from verse 18 again. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirits of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Remember the passage we looked at last week. Paul rejoiced in the proclamation of Christ, despite the barriers of his imprisonment and the insincerity of other preachers. Wonderfully, as Steve um, helped us to see, those terrible things actually propelled the gospel forward. Yet here, Paul isn't just happy that the gospel is having an effect on others while he rots away in prison. No, try as his rivals made to discourage him, Paul himself is also joyfully confident that God is present and at work in him. Indeed, it is somehow through his chains that the Lord, in answer to their prayers and by the work of the Holy Spirit, will deliver Paul. He specifically ties his adversity with his deliverance. Now, what does that mean? Because he can't be 100% sure that he'll be released from prison. He can't know that. The meaning of what Paul says is tied to what he says next in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul's deliverance is entirely connected to the magnification, the glory and the honor of Christ. Whether he lives or he dies, Paul knows ultimately he won't be disgraced because he shares in, in Christ's exalted 
resurrection life. Christ humbled himself to death on a Christ, but as we'll see soon in Philippians, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In life, that same Jesus Christ is present and manifested in Paul by the Spirit. In death, that same Jesus Christ is present and manifested in Paul by the Spirit. Either way, Jesus Christ is with Paul and Jesus Christ will be proclaimed in the person of Paul. And that foundation allows Paul to read his situation with joy and expectation, not dread and defeat. Everything else pales into insignificance because Paul knows, and this is so crucial, that the most fundamental extremes in life are not between biological life and biological death, but between life in Christ and life outside of him. That is a reality true for all people. And that's how Paul can truly say, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a burial inscription that would be. And maybe it was Paul's burial inscription. I'm sure many of you already know this, but that's exactly what is inscribed in the slate in memory to Edward Coombs outside the church at Warwick Road. The Apostle Paul, Edward Coombs, Malcolm Ferguson, and many others before us exemplified how the life-giving path of the Christian is in Christ, even in death. Death does not have the final word. The question for us, as those who go on living for now, is how does that reality take root in us? How do we absorb and appropriate that light, the light of Christ, in the shadow of death? So that we might see the world like Paul and be joyfully confident in whatever we face. Well, following Paul's example here, we contemplate on Christ. Our society is absolutely obsessed with measurable targets and goals. Those of you at school now will probably know that better than the rest of us. Everything for you is tracked and recorded. You have SATs, standard assessment tests from the age of seven. If you're a teacher, you were probably trained to track pupils um, by providing SMART goals, which are specific, measurable, achievable, relevant and time-bound goals. Of course, measurable targets and tracking are not bad things per se, but if we think about it, what are the possible unacknowledged assumptions behind them? By definition, tracking separates pupils by academic merit. How might that shape and impact our children if they're streamed according to high, average, and low abilities from the very beginning. 
How is that training and preparing them to see the world? It's not just schools though. You only have to read the newspaper obituaries to see how someone's legacy is often defined in terms of their profession or their wealth, achievements, status. Or think about social media. Something like Facebook was designed to connect people, but it's increasingly become a platform, platform for self-promotion and a gallery of our achievements. The problem is, what happens when our plans are cut short and our expectations are dashed, perhaps through loss or serious illness, or things don't work out the way that we wanted them to, the way that they're supposed to be, either for us or for our children, when our circumstances feel more like a curse than a blessing? What if this pandemic ruins my career? What if there is no vaccine for the virus and it cannot simply be beaten? What if it's a long, long time before you and I are able to meet together, to, all together for Sunday worship? What then? Those of us who've experienced some measure of depression or anxiety will know that feeling all too well of being trapped in those questions. Wonderfully, for the Christian, fear does not need to be our ultimate master. Despite what others say, the answer is not complete self-insulation because there is no measure or restriction or vaccine that can eradicate mortality. And you know, the other way, neither is the answer complete self-confidence because that's living in denial of our, our, our mortality. The way that we come to embrace our mortality in all circumstances is by lifting our eyes and our hearts to the self-sufficient Lord of life, whose goodness and love constantly follows us all of our days, as we sang uh, in Psalm 23 earlier. There is no end to his goodness. There is no end to his life. So we cannot be lost from his presence. To live is Christ is not just Paul's way of, uh, you know, affirming his love for the Lord, though I'm sure it is. It is also truly who he is. It is truly who we are. Christ is our life, even in death. Because he lives, we live. We're specially united to him. We belong to him. Through him, we stand secure. So contemplate on him. Come to him. Commune with him. He's where our comfort comes from as we read the headlines this week, or as we walk into the doctor's surgery, or as we put on our face mask again, a visceral reminder that we're all moving towards the same thing. Here's a, a pretty sad fact about me. Um, I, um, I uh, enjoy making lists, um, not just any lists, top 10 lists. Um, I have lists of all my top 10 favorite pizza toppings and uh, my top 10 sporting venues, my top 10 vegetables, almost everything. Um, they're all very carefully considered. It, it really is a bit sad, but um, Paul's, um, way of considering the, the possible outcomes here 
resonated with me because I, I love the way that he carefully weighs up um, everything by drawing up a, a list of pros and cons. Um, he, uh, he says, if I live, well, there'll be ongoing fruitful ministry. Um, the, there'll be progress and joy of others in the faith. Um, but the con is, uh, you know, I won't be with Christ in glory. And if I die, well, then I will be with Christ in glory, which would be great. But that would be worse for the Philippians. What do I want more? I'm, I'm torn between the two, Paul says. Now, it's not that Paul actually has a choice in all this. Only God just determines whether we live or we die. But all Paul is doing is contemplating on Christ and delighting in him through his circumstances. And that becomes the lens through which he sees everything. Remember, he's writing in chains, but his rejection and his imprisonment doesn't even factor into that list. In fact, it's almost as if he's curious about the possible scenarios. One's better for him because he'll get to enjoy Christ in the fullness of his glory, but he's pretty convinced it will be the other because that will be a blessing to the Philippians whom he loves. Paul's heart is so attuned to the heart of Christ that he's just able to see things in a completely different way. And that's what comes through closeness with Christ. The Christian life is not some pie in the sky, hope things get better when I die kind of faith. The Christian life, which is eternal, also involves receiving from and enjoying Christ even now, when we're on top of the world or when we're in the pit. Before we close, there's just one way that I thought we might reflect on what this means for us. Because one of the means, one of the special means that God has given us to do this contemplation and this communion with God in Christ is as we gather as Christ's body, the church. And over the past few weeks, some of us have been able to come together for in-person worship at church. And for some, that's been a great delight. But for others, it's been difficult for a variety of reasons. The lack of singing, the face masks, the distancing, children finding it hard to stay in one place. Still others have been nervous about signing up because of concerns of being infected or infecting others. Now, all of those things are perfectly understandable. In many ways, it's really hard to see how much is gained by meeting in person. You, we, I sympathize with that entirely. So why would we gather? Don't we just get the same thing, if not perhaps more, by taking part online? And to that, I gently want to say, no. It may not look like much with the building not even half as full. It might be more difficult to sign up and come along. We might be faced with more restrictions and distractions than we might get on our sofas at home. You might feel even that you get less, immediately speaking, out of it. But God has graciously provided a means of life and growth in Christ through the visible assembling of Christ's faithful people in which the word is preached 
and the sacraments are administered for the nurturing and benefit of, of the church. The 39 Articles calls those things effectual signs of grace, which means that they have a supernatural and spiritual effect upon us that is not necessarily visible or measurable. The trouble is that rubs up against secularism. Partaking in those things by faith conflicts with our nation and our society's um, uh, mindset that the material is all there is. The church has a wonderful opportunity to live off, to live out and offer a, a better and, and a life-giving way. So if you can, come to church. We recognize that in some cases, it's not always possible. For example, if you're housebound or if you've got COVID-19 related symptoms, if that applies to you, we're working to do all we can to care for you better. And for some of you, we're really sorry that we haven't been able to support you in the ways that you've needed in the past. But if you're able to, for your own progress and joy and for the progress and joy of others, and that Christ might be exalted in us, live by faith, not fear. We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word, visible and invisible, that comes from the mouth of the Lord. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so, in Paul's words, may our love for him abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that we might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. <laughs>